So today we're Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we have been in these last couple of weeks a period of seeing Jesus confront the sins of his day. And we, we appreciate, in fact, our culture really loves to talk about Jesus and his love for people and his mercy on people and the way that he met people in the middle of their sin, like he hung out with sinners and went to their parties and, and engaged with them. And we should appreciate that because the reality is we would not know him if he did not do those things, right? Like we would be left alone if he didn't show up in the middle of our mess and, and, and approach us. But when we come to passages that begin to show Jesus another aspect of Jesus' ministry, an aspect that's not nearly as popular in our culture today, we kind of move past them to begin dealing with more user-friendly passages, things that make us feel a little better. And this, this reality, though, we've been spending the last couple of weeks in the middle of this is where Jesus is confronting people in the midst of their religious sin. In fact, last week as we studied, he confronted the lawyers and the Pharisees for their legalistic uh, hypocrisy, the, the sticking to t the, the, the living by a law and determining self-righteousness by a law, but then really not being fully uh, true about who they are, that not being the real truth about who they were. He confronted them in the midst of it, and when we did that, I, I kind of challenged you to consider it in your own life. The reality is, is we are... Are the people we are the we are the religious people of the day? We need to be on guard in our own hearts against things like legalism and hypocrisy. And so, so we did that. But as we move on today, as we move on today into chapter twelve, verses one through twelve, Jesus is going to continue dealing with hypocrisy. He's going to demonstrate to us just how absolutely dangerous hypocrisy is in the life of, of a person. And then he is going to show us how to avoid it. As his people, we don't have to be hypocrites. He's going to help us see just how we do that. Well, let's read the passage and then we'll see what the Lord has for us in his word. So Luke chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 1. In the meantime... So many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more to do or nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So you've heard it before. Probably you've heard it before. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Like, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. In fact, I... I love Jesus, but I, his people, they're hypocrites. I want nothing to do with God's people because they're a bunch of hypocrites. I was uh, in a conversation. I was back when I was employed at the airport. I was in a conversation with a, a pilot who I worked with, and she, uh, she flew for the charter company that, that uh, I was director of maintenance for, and, and she, she knew me. I mean, she knew that I was a Christian. She knew that I was working to plant the church at this time. She knew... Uh, my, my, she, I mean, she knew who I was. And I ended up in a conversation with her, and I began to ask her questions about where she stood with Jesus. And she immediately moved that to her church attendance and told me, I don't go to church anymore because everybody that goes to church is a bunch, everybody that goes to church is just hypocrites. 
Well, I don't know if she connected the dots, but I connected the dots, and I felt pretty insulted because she had just lumped me in, knowing who I am. I wanted to look over my shoulder and check and make sure, like, are you talking about me? But I thought that's not necessarily going to be helpful. But this seems to be the common thread, the common theme, the common perspective of many people in our world today. I don't have a lot of scientific statistics. I found one study that listed the statistics, but it's from 1986. And so, so I, I, I thought maybe we've changed a little bit since 1986. So I didn't bring that one. But as I read about all the surveys about reasons why people are, are, are beginning to distance themselves and disconnect from church and why the American church is in decline, there seemed to be an, under, an undertone, that, a thread that ran through all of them, but not once did I hear the word hypocrisy used. But in every one of these excuses, every one of these reasons, I guess I should say, there's this thought that Christians... Don't do what Christians say they're going to do. Christians don't live up to my expectations. Christians don't act like I think they should. Christians aren't very loving people. Underneath all of this, even if they're not using the word, is the accusation of hypocrisy. We're one thing in image, but we're a whole other thing in actuality. Well, if it's true, I'm not convinced that it's true. In fact, I'm, I'm going to demonstrate to you maybe a different perspective today. But if it's true that the church is full of hypocrites and that every one of us in this room are, are overwhelmed with and filled with hypocrisy, then I think we should count ourselves lucky. Count ourselves blessed today because we get to hear Jesus teach on this very issue. Show us, impress upon us the danger of hypocrisy. And show us how he enables us to avoid it. In fact, hypocrisy, this is a, the major theme, the major point that I'll make today. And we'll build everything out of that. Hypocrisy, this would be the summary of his teaching, I think. Hypocrisy thoroughly corrupts the heart of man. But Jesus removes our need to pretend and perform. Hypocrisy thoroughly corrupts the heart of man. But Jesus removes our need to perform. We're going to answer three questions that's going to help us see this come out of the text. What is hypocrisy? What's so dangerous about hypocrisy? And how are we going to avoid hypocrisy? Well, what is hypocrisy? The original word hypocrisis, that's the Greek word, would have been used of people playing a role. In that day and age, that's how, how, how it would have been used. Strong's Greek dictionary defines it as acting under a feigned Part that is figuratively deceit, hypocrisy. The complete word study dictionary states that hypocrisis, I'm sorry, <clears throat> hypocrisis was generally used for flattery or evil deception. Some people that are smarter than me, church leaders that have lived through the ages, Augustine, one of the early church leaders, writes, It is plain. What hypocrites flaunt before the eyes of men, they do not entertain in the heart as well. For hypocrites are pretenders. It is though they were assuming a character as is done on the stage. His understanding of hypocrisy demonstrates the, the distinction between the external life and the internal life. The distinction that says they take on a role as if they are standing in some theatrical work to present an image, to convince people of something that's not true. J.C. Ryle writes, of all the sins into which men can fall, none seems so exceedingly sinful as false profession and hypocrisy. It's bad enough to be led away captive by open sin and to serve diverse lusts and pleasures. But it is even worse to pretend to have a religion while in reality we serve the world. We see in his use or understanding of the word, we can see in his definition and explanation of hypocrisy that he clearly thinks that it's sinful. But it seems that he, see, he thinks that it's exceedingly sinful because it's a lie that makes you believe that you're not sinful. It's a sin that convinces you that there is no sin. Ray Ortland. Hypocrisy is not simply thinking I'm going to fool everyone. It is thinking I can obey God selectively by my preferences. 
You know, taking all of this into consideration, taking all these perspectives into consideration for our purposes today, I just want to build a working definition that will help inform us as we work through this passage, understanding what Jesus is saying when he says, beware of the, Pharisee, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We need to understand thoroughly what hypocrisy is. So with all of these things in mind, this is the working definition that I would give to you. Hypocrisy is pretending that you are not as sinful as you are and performing in an effort to convince everyone of it. Pretending denies the truth. It, 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 it perpetrates a lie so that we can convince ourselves, I'm not really that sinful. It perpetrates a, a story. And then it begins to act in line with that story or if, with that script if you will. I'm not really a sinful person. Look at all the good things I do. Pretending, seeking to convince yourself, performing to convince everyone else, and even God himself. That is hypocrisy. So what does it look like, though? I mean, okay, well, that's a good definition, maybe, but, but, but what does it look like? We see it all around us. Get on Facebook for just a second. Don't do it now because I'll never get you back. I know what it is. You get on Facebook and 15 minutes gone. And I know it's more interesting than me, so I get that. But, but when you leave, get on Facebook for just a minute. Is there anybody you know that's not putting their best foot forward so that they can ensure that people think well of them? I... I'm amazed in this selfie culture. You see selfies on Facebook all the time, right? In the selfie culture. Have you, have you ever known the, noticed the predominant pose of the selfie? You know, who, you know why people do that? Because they're embarrassed of the double chin they got hanging. They want to look leaner. They want to present a better image. You know who else lifts their chin and looks down their noses? Pharisees. Hey, we're better than everybody else. Look at us. We're thin. We don't have a double chin. Okay, maybe that's not true. But they do lift their noses and look, lift their chins and look down their noses. One I experience regularly, pretty often, if not, if not weekly, at least multiple times in a month. I end up in a conversation, and the person finds out I'm a pastor. I never lead with that. I'm just going to tell you. I, I thought, well, this is going to be a great way to evangelize because now I'm a pastor, and it's just an automatic in. Nope. Because once they find out you're a pastor, everybody's a Christian. I'm serious. As soon as it comes out what my role is, what my job is, what my function through the week is, the, 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 the patterns of speech change the topics of conversation change, and the actions change. It happened just this last week. I was on the phone with this lady, and she was just cussing up a storm. Like every, every sentence, at least every other sentence, was, was cuss words in it, right? Like, like she just cussing, just completely normal, like this is a regular, everyday part of speech. And then it comes out, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and she tried to quit cussing. And she couldn't do it. I should laugh. It's not, it was kind of funny, though, as I was listening. And, and finally, when she realized I can't quit cussing, she starts to make excuses for it. She begins blaming the people she works with and the type of job she does. That's, that's hypocrisy. She wanted to present an image to me that was not true. Just for the record, I don't care if you cuss. If you've got a conscience issue about that, that's between you and the Lord. Don't use me as your reason to be a legalist, okay? The most refreshing conversations I have are with people who are real, like who are just being who they are, okay? I, I would prefer that because then we can really deal with issues. The truth is hypocrisy is everywhere. We get blamed for it. The church gets the brunt of these accusations, but hypocrisy is everywhere. There are plenty of religious folks out there, 
in the world that they show up at church on Sunday, they, they give God a whole hour and a half of their life. And then they live the, the next six days of the week, actually starting that afternoon, the next six days of the six and a half days of the week. And they're like, I didn't shoot anybody. I'm a good person. I mean, I didn't kill anybody. And I showed up to church on Sunday. I'm really good. They do all kinds of things, but they do them because they love themselves more than they love God. Isn't that exactly what Jesus confronted last week in the passage in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, when he said, you're giving all of these things, you're tithing down to your spices and your herbs, but you can't recognize justice. You can't make a right judgment, and you do not love God. He showed them that their outward actions did not line up with their inner person. And the reality is this, this is the thing, because their performance was built on, on, on anything but righteous motives, because their performance was built on these wrong motives, their religious effort was not righteous effort. It was not acceptable. It was not pleasing to God. They were hypocrites. And here's the thing. Let me just go ahead and squeeze this in now. There's a lot of religious folks that run around calling themselves Christian and going to church that are the most hypocritical people you might ever meet. But as I studied this week, I don't, I don't think we ought to consider them as the Christians who are full of hypocrisy. I think the reality is they're churchgoers who are hypocrites like everybody else in the world is a hypocrite. The fact is, by the time we're done, I'm going to I think I'm going to be able to show you from this text that Christians, in confessing our sin, I'm not saying we don't struggle with hypocrisy, but in confessing our sin and in falling on our face before a Savior, a true and authentic Christian is probably the most consistent person. I'll save that for later. Keep listening. How about celebrities, politicians? Yes, maybe even some, not all, but some of our celebrity pastors that do these good works, these charitable works. They start foundations. They write books about their systems and how good they are. And if everybody would just follow my system, man, everybody would be better off. If you just follow my system, they do things that the world pats them on the back for elevates them, exalts them, makes them feel good about themselves. Isn't this exactly what Jesus confronted when he said to the Pharisees in Luke eleven forty three? You long for, you desire the seats of privilege in the synagogue. And, and hey, you really appreciate the attention you get when you're in the marketplace. And because they pretended and performed to impress men, their religious effort did not impress God. And the sad truth was, was that the reward that they longed for in the approval of men was the only reward they would ever know. And they got it in a pat on the back. How sad is that? How about these people who shock us with the drastic difference between their public life and their private life? Like on the surface, they are, they, they are normal, functioning, happy, just stable people. But underneath, there's a depraved and sinful nature that leads them to act and think in horrific ways. Act when they think no one is looking and always thinking. In horrific ways. But if anybody ever heard those thoughts, they would be shocked. I had a friend that uh, knew him for several years, and he passed away due to cancer. And I'm not trying to tread on a, a, a man's memory. I don't, I don't want you to take it that way, but this was shocking. We showed up to his funeral, and as the pastor stood up to begin the eulogy and walk through the process of the funeral or the, the, the presentation of the funeral, he began to talk about this guy, but he used a different name than any of us knew him by. 
I, I'm literally, we looked at, are we at this, are we at the right? We know his family's sitting there, but it felt like all of a sudden we were at somebody else's funeral. We never knew him as a man who set foot inside the church. We never knew him as a man who had a devotion to Jesus. We never knew anything about him being religious or being Christian or, or, or anything. The life we knew of him was, was, was it, wasn't, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But it wasn't the presentation we had before us. And when we finished, I was shocked. And I wondered, I didn't say anything because it was not my place to say anything, but I wondered if people would have known the man that I knew, if they would have been as shocked as I was shocked. Because it certainly seemed like he was living two different lives in two different places. Isn't this exactly what Jesus calls out in Luke chapter 11, verse 44, as he confronts the Pharisees and, you, and says to them, you are like unmarked graves. You look like you're just a park, right? You look like a place you sit down and have a picnic, but underneath is death. Your outward appearance is drastically different than your inward being. Because their pretending and performing came from a dead heart, their religious effort did nothing to change that they were dead men walking. They were riddled with death, but they'd figured out a way to make themselves appear to be alive. Now, you may not know anybody that claims to be a Pharisee today. I doubt there's many people walking around putting that on as a badge of honor. But I think the reality is that the spirit of Phariseeism is alive and well and flourishing in this world in which we live today. The Christian church does get the brunt of complaints, and I would not say that we do not struggle against hypocrisy. Don't misunderstand me. I think we struggle, and we are called to struggle. But the truth is that we are not the only ones that are hypocrites. You can find hypocrisy in every heart because there's not a person who has ever lived who hasn't sought to present themselves in such a light that they would be approved of and accepted by men. And I use that term generically, men and women. The truth is, hypocrisy is everywhere. And Jesus tells his disciples, his disciples, he's not speaking to the broader world. He's not speaking to the crowds. I mean, just imagine the number of people there. So many people, they're trampling on one another, trying to get to Jesus and hear what he has to say and see him do some miraculous things. And he begins to speak to his disciples, not the broader crowd, his disciples, those who would learn from him and then follow him, those who would hear his words and respond in kind, those who would hear his teaching and then obey his words. This is a distinction. He's speaking primarily to them. And he says, look out for it. It is dangerous. Beware of it. Why is it so dangerous? What's so dangerous about hypocrisy? I mean, it really it seems like they're just hurting themselves. Yes, they're hurting themselves. But the depths at which they're hurting themselves, they have no clue. He tells us what's so dangerous about hypocrisy. It's pervasive. Pervasive. It does not stop eating until it has nothing left to consume. Like leaven in dough, like yeast in dough, a little bit if left there, if unattended, without seeking, just leaving it to be, a little bit will leaven the whole lump. Well, I wanted unleavened bread. A little bit of yeast goes and eats until there's nothing left to consume. Hypocrisy does this in the hearts of people. It is pervasive. It, it goes all the way through until there is nothing left. Until there's nothing left of truth, there's nothing left of light, there's no ability to see your right judgment, there's no ability to love God, there's no ability to align the inner life with the outer life. 
Hypocrisy, if left unchecked, will consume a person completely. Beware of it, he says. Hypocrisy is deceptive. You see, as he teaches, he's talking about the things done in secret and then the things done will be brought into the light. The words whispered in private will be brought into the public. They will be shouted from the housetop. We see in this that there is this completely, complete distinction between what's private and what's public. Hypocrisy loves the dark. It thrives in the dark. It's like a mushroom. Put it in a cave and it'll thrive. The reality is this this hypocrisy is deceptive. You bring it into the light, it cannot stand against the truth. A quote that I came across as I prepared for this sermon this week from John Piper as he spoke to graduates at Bethlehem College warning them in similar fashion to guard against hypocrisy in their life. He says, a hypocrite is a peculiar kind of liar. Hypocrisy is a peculiar kind of lying. A hypocrite is a person for whom lying has gone down into the personality. Hypocrites don't just tell lies. They are lies. They're not just speaking it anymore. Their entire existence is defined by it. Lies, the deception. He goes on, a hypocrite is a horrifying spectacle. Truth has become utterly alien, swept away by deep, deep devotion to self-protection, self-preservation, and self-exaltation. The hypocrite cannot speak truth. Incapable. The hypocrite cannot speak truth. Oh, true statements come out of his mouth. But they do not come out because they are true. They are not spoken as true. They are spoken as expedient, advantageous, convenient. Truth is not functional in the hypocrite. It's not a governing category. It is alien. It is gone. And this is terrifying. The absence of truth indicates a full, complete absence of the God who is truth. This is terrifying. Completely abandoned, completely deceived. Eventually, everything gets found out. Everything gets shown. The confessions we make with our mouth that don't align with the truth in our heart, they're proven. All these churchgoers who claim the name of Christ, they'll be shown to be what they are. Every Christian who fights against hypocrisy, he'll be shown to be what he is, she is. Every person in the world who stands and points a finger at you and claims you're a hypocrite, their hypocrisy will be revealed at some point. In this life or the next, everything is going to be brought into the light. There will be no room for deception anymore. To live this life fully separated from that truth is terrifying. Because it doesn't bode well for eternity. These people are deceived as they are being pervasively infected by sin. They are self-exalting people. Hypocrisy seeks to justify itself, prove itself worthy, demonstrate its own value. The hypocrite pretends he is less sinful than he really is. He keeps up this charade. Let me add to this, not just self-exalting, self-sufficient. Like, I'm not that sinful. Look, 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 I'm a pretty good person. I came to church today. I didn't shoot anybody all week long. If you saw my week, you'd know how good a person I am. And we tell ourselves those lies over and over and over until we really believe them. And then we're self-sufficient Hypocrisy pretends that by its own will, it can overcome its own shortcomings. Oh, yeah, I have a few struggles. I, I got some sin in my life, but, but I'm not as bad as they are. Look, didn't you remember I didn't shoot anybody, and I actually went to church? I didn't do something I shouldn't, and I did do something I should. 
They may say the words with their mouths, but those words will be a performance that's not an honest reflection of what they believe in their being. And Jesus shows us how faulty this is. Hypocrisy denies God's just wrath. It imagines that you're the only person, and I don't necessarily mean you, but it, that, that the hypocrite is the only person that doesn't deserve eternal condemnation from God. It denies that his provision of salvation through his son isn't necessary for you. It denies that God is able to condemn. Jesus warns against this. God, God obviously wouldn't send somebody as good as me to hell. Like I've, I'm better than they are. Jesus has a different opinion. Don't fear men. Fear the one who can kill you and send you into hell. You know, that, that place of eternal darkness, the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. A place that probably is worse than we can imagine. But I don't deserve that. By my own standard, by, by the way I look at things, he would never do that to me. Hypocrisy denies the need for a savior. Not only is it about promoting oneself and putting oneself, fall, oneself forward as, as a person who doesn't deserve the wrath of God, exalting itself in front of others, Hypocrisy is also self-sufficient in that it's, it's all about pulling oneself up by the bootstraps, denying the need for a savior, denying the need that Jesus needed to die for me. And so I don't, I don't, I don't need to really believe in Jesus. I don't really need to ask for forgiveness for my sins. I didn't need somebody to die on my behalf. I mean, I, I'll get it together eventually. And, and when I stand before him, I'll, I'll tell him a good joke and talk to him about those hours I was at church and how I didn't shoot people. You're seeing a theme, right? Like I'm an angry person, I guess, but I'll, I'll do this. I, I think he'll let me in. I'll convince him I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I, I don't really need Jesus. The reality is there's not a person that's ever lived or ever will live other than Christ. that even the smallest amount of sin didn't send them, put them, place them under the just and powerful wrath of God. When it's played itself out fully, hypocrisy leads ultimately not simply, not, not, not simply to just denying that you have a need for Jesus. All of a sudden, you've got to figure out a way to, to do away with Jesus, drawn to its logical conclusion at some point, well, well, if the world didn't need Jesus and we could make it on our own, then the cross makes no sense. So the death and resurrection was unnecessary. And, and oh, by the way, I, I mean, if that's unnecessary and that's not doing the work that Jesus said it was going to do, then, then probably it must be that his power and his teaching not exactly right either. I can kind of pick and choose what I like and I'll just listen to that and I'll, I'll move past pretty quickly the things I don't like or I'll just kind of reject them. The problem is, and this is exactly what happened with the Pharisees, this is exactly what Jesus was confronting in the Pharisees, is that in denying him, in, in not denying his power, but, but, but then discrediting him by, by saying that the things that he did were by the power of the devil, it wasn't that they were just talking bad about Jesus. They were, they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. And when they did that, think about this. When they did that, suddenly, if Jesus was doing all that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, which Luke gives us a perspective that he never gave up divinity, he never quit being God. In some ways, as he added this nature of a man to himself, he limits himself. And the Holy Spirit anoints him and gives him power. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he worked 
amazing miracles. The deaf heard, the lame walked, the the blind saw, the, the sick were made well, the dead were made alive, demons were cast out. And they said, that's the power of the devil. They undermine themselves right there. Because if everything he's doing is the power of the devil, then they are right to reject him. They are right to ignore the cross. They are right to ignore the resurrection. They are right to run from him rather than follow him. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you are no longer in a place where you will ever be able to follow Christ as Savior. And Jesus says, this is unforgivable. It's terrifying. This is how dangerous hypocrisy is. And he goes on, he says, he, so let, me just, let me just bring this out a little further. I'll go ahead and give you this quote. Professor Herman Bavik He's a theologian, a Dutch theologian, and, and he wrote uh, some pretty, pretty profound works. In, in Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 3, he writes this about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This consists not in doubting or simply denying the truth, but in a denial which goes against the conviction of the intellect, against the enlightenment of conscience, against the dictates of the heart, in a conscious willful and intentional imputation to the influence and working of Satan, that which is clearly recognized as God's work. So what he's saying is this. You, you say that Satan is doing what only God has done. You are applying God's powerful works to the devil. I.e., he says, in a definite blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in a willful declaration that the Holy Spirit is the spirit from the abyss, truth is a lie, and Christ is Satan himself. For this reason, the sin is unforgivable. Although, listen, this is important. Although God's grace is not too small and too powerless for it. God can forgive any sin he so deems. His grace is sufficient. It is not that God's grace is too small and too powerless. Yet in the kingdom of sin there are laws and ordinances placed there by God and maintained in him. And this law in the case of this particular sin is of such a nature that it excludes all repentance, cauterizes the conscience, obdurates and hardens the sinner once and for all. This is the pervasiveness of hypocrisy. This is what Jesus is warning against. It hardens us until we are so hard that there is no way back. And in this way makes his sin unpardonable. Hypocrisy, when fully consumed, when fully consumed a person's heart, hardens that heart so completely that it will not look to God, that it will deny God, that it will declare that he's unfit, that he's not just unfit, that he is doing things that are devilish and demonic. And in so doing, in so doing, that person sets themselves apart from him in a way that is unforgivable. And I think this is especially important for us to hear today because Jesus, or in, in these words here, Jesus places this not just in blasphemy, like I don't, not just when they speak bad about me, but when they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then he immediately brings in how the Spirit empowers his followers. You don't just blaspheme. A person won't just blaspheme the Holy Spirit by, by denying Christ's power or calling Christ's power demonic, but how the Holy Spirit empowers his people when that's rejected and attributed to to, to the devil, and we're called evil because we stand for truth and we won't affirm homosexuality because it's against the truth and we won't affirm uh, sexual immorality of any kind when we won't affirm a person in their sin but we'll confront them in their sin with the intention of showing them the grace of God in Jesus Christ and they say to us, no, 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 you're a hypocrite and they begin to accuse us and they put us on trial and the Holy Spirit empowers his people to speak. We're able to give answers that we are surprised by ourselves because the Holy Spirit within us enables us to answer the challenge. And when they reject, when they determine that you're still evil for thinking their sin is sin, They're not rejecting you. 
and rejecting the Spirit of God who gives you power to speak. And rather than being offended by that, rather than getting angry about it and hiding away and being fearful of it, man, that's a call to pity them desperately, to be sad for them, because the hypocrisy that is eating them, that is consuming them, is hardening them to the point that there will be no return. Hypocrisy, while we struggle with it and while we might be accused of it, is not a foregone conclusion in the life of a Christian. In fact, Jesus' instruction in his implication of saying, beware of this, beware of the leaven of, of, of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, he helps them see, he shows them clearly, there's a way out. Just real quickly, three things that he shows them. Fear God over man. This is what Jesus gets to. He says, he says, okay, well, watch out for this. Everything's going to be shown to be truth and, and false, and, and all of these lies are going to be brought out. All of this hypocrisy is going to be shown. He says, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Don't be afraid for the truth to be shown. Don't be afraid, afraid of that. Don't fear what people will say about you because they can do nothing with you after you're dead. But I warn you, to, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who, after he's killed you, has authority to cast you into hell. Fear God first. Fear God most. And we have a tough, a tough time in, in, in light of the gospel. We struggle with the understanding of fearing God. Because in our idea of fear is something we fear things that are bad. But I was, I was struck a couple of weeks ago as I was reading an article. I was struck by a passage, a, a, a phrase out of C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia, as he paints a picture, as he paints a picture in a very artistic and, 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 and profound way through this story. Speaking of this lion, Aslan, and, and showing us this, this lion and, and talking about how, how these children who have stumbled into Narnia are about to meet him, he comes to this place where he begins to write. He says, But shall we see him? asked Susan. She's one of the daughters. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. This is Mr. Beaver. You know, animals talk in Narnia because that's what happens in Narnia. Daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I am to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. It, is he a man? asked Lucy. She's the youngest. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. You already begin to see the imagery of Christ being painted out here. The emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, or they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Don't you, or safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Man, that's the God that has reached down and saved us. Of course he isn't safe. He's righteous and he's holy and he's just. And we stand condemned before him. <laughs> but he's good. And he says, if you'll trust in my son, if you'll quit, if, if you, if you quit leaning into your own works and your own righteous efforts, you can come into my kingdom. It's the picture of Mary singing the Magnificat. His mercy is for those who fear him, she said. 
She's singing about the birth of her child, the Savior, the Messiah. God's mercy is for those who fear him. Fearing him is the doorway into receiving and standing under his grace and his forgiveness. It's standing in the place of where Jesus doesn't just, he, he doesn't just take our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. He doesn't just withhold our judgment, but he puts on us a, a perfection and a purity that we can never earn on our own. Please hear these words from Jesus. Do not fear man. Fear this God who, if you reject, has every right to send you into hell. Who has all the power to send you into hell. Fear God over man. Trust God over self. He knows us intimately. I love this picture that Jesus gives us. Aren't five sparrows worth two pennies? This insignificant, seemingly invaluable bird. Many of us would like to just get rid of because they bug us. And yet God has not forgotten one of them. He knows you so intimately knows you so personally, so closely, even the numbers of the hairs on your head are in his mind. He knows you in ways that no one else knows you. There's no secrets from him. There's no hiding from him. Where he goes, it's light and, and, and the truth is always revealed. He knows you inside and out. Trust him. Trust him. There's no one else that can say this about you. There's no one else who has this intimate knowledge of you. And there's no one else who says you are more valuable to me. And don't make the mistake of making that value about yourself. That says something great about God. But trust Him. Lean into His knowledge of you and His grace for you despite the truth you know about yourself. He knows it too. Fear God, trust God, and confess Christ continually. Honestly, confess your sin and need of a Savior. I told you, I think that, that Christians, the true, authentic, real, believing Christians, those who have been converted and from, from death to life, those who have been made alive, I think we get a bad rap. I'm not saying we don't struggle with hypocrisy. But there's not a person in this room who stood before Christ and said, you, you, you need to let me in because I deserve it, and then that worked. Every Christian in this room, every Christian who's gathered in a church this morning, true living beings, has at some point had to confess their sin. You cannot be a Christian without confessing your need of a Savior and His ability to save you. They don't go together. Now, certainly, certainly we struggle against the Pharisaic uh, tendencies in our flesh. But daily, we are called to confess Christ, which means confessing not only who he is in front of men, but demonstrating that we don't stand before him by our own works and by our own power. You're hypocrites, they say. You're right. I am. And I've asked God to forgive me through the power of his perfect, through the power of Jesus' perfect life, through the power of Jesus' sacrificial cross, and through the power of Jesus' victorious resurrection, I have pleaded with him for my forgiveness. I have confessed my need of a Savior. The truth is, us living beings who have been made alive by God don't claim to be here because we're perfect. We're claim, we claim to be here because of Jesus. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And as, and, and as and much as it takes us to step in, this is the daily call of every Christian life. Confess Christ before men. Because if you won't, if you won't honestly confess Christ before men, he will not confess you in 
heaven. Honestly confess him as your savior. Honestly confess his power to save through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. Honestly confess him both through your words and your deeds so that your performance begins to match your confession so that you no longer have to pretend that you're more, more, less sinful than you are. I am a sinner. I'll sit down and talk to any of you about it. There's some things I will confess to certain people, but I am telling you I am a sinful man, and I fight hard against it. There's a reason why I use the illustration that I hadn't shot somebody this week over and over and over. I get frustrated just like everyone else. I have a tendency to lift my nose or to lift my chin and look down my nose. Not because I want to hide my double chin, but because I tend to think I'm better and more deserving than other people. But I'm standing here to tell you, Jesus has made me alive. And I know I'm a sinner but I know Jesus has forgiven me and I would call you to trust him so fully, to fear God so completely that you wouldn't be living to impress anyone but him by faith. That through that faith, he might begin the sanctification process that would guard you against being hardened completely by hypocrisy. Let's do our best to beware of it, to fight against it, and when, when the accusations come, when the accusations come, rather than being offended, rather than seeking to justify ourselves in front of man, let's find ways to look at these people with compassion who are being hardened by the hypocrisy of their own hearts and they can't see it. And let's confess Christ to them so that they might see that there is hope for every sinner. Hypocrisy thoroughly corrupts the heart of man. But Jesus removes our need to pretend and perform. I praise him for it. Let's pray. Father God, may we fear you rightly. May we exalt you above all others. May we live in such a way that we honor you preeminently. God, would you empower us by your spirit to speak words that, that bring truth and reveal grace, that provide grace. Would you, Father, by your spirit, Sanctify us that we might push hypocrisy to the fringes of our being. And that we might live fearing you, trusting you, and confessing your power brought to us by your son's perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. Father, do this work today. And keep doing this work until you come back, until you send your son for us pray these things in Jesus powerful holy and precious name by the power of your holy spirit amen